Matthew chapter 7. I spent uh, 10 years of my life in youth ministry, uh, serving um, as a youth pastor, youth leader, um, all around uh, expert on teenagers and all things smelly with middle schoolers. And uh, one of the things I recognized as I transitioned out of uh, youth ministry into being a senior pastor and regularly preaching to the whole congregation is that uh, no one generally grows up. Um, we tend to act, even in our latter years, like high schoolers. Now, what do I mean? Well, when we were in high school, we had this insatiable desire to be liked by everyone or perhaps just anyone. Uh, there was a drive in, in, in most high schoolers and, and obviously middle schoolers as well to be liked. Uh, we wanted to be uh, perhaps as popular as we could be in our circles that we ran in. Um, we wanted to be liked. And, and who doesn't want to be liked? Do you want to be liked by your neighbors? Of course, you, you want to be liked by your coworkers, um, perhaps even tolerated by your family members. Um, uh, we, we desire to be popular uh, in, in many respects. And, and for some, they struggle with that more than others. We, we, uh, we do things to be accepted. We, we do things to be liked by others. And, and because this was sort of normalized in our life early on, and, and maybe it's just a Western culture, maybe it's just a, an American thing, I, I don't really know. But, but we, because this is normative in our adolescent years to be liked, we, we then want to be liked by those around us. And so when we grow up, we tend to do things and think certain ways in order to be liked by the most amount of people. And so we might uh, for perhaps grow up to live as Christians kind of anonymously, uh, lest someone not like us because of our certain viewpoints on things like abortion, or even today, matters of homosexuality and same-sex marriage. We, we might grow to be kind of quiet on certain controversial issues because we want to be liked by everyone. And as Christians, what we find the trouble to be is that we, as Christians, if we live out our Christianity uh, in a way that's honest and clear to those around us, um, Christians generally aren't liked by many. They're tolerated, but they're not liked. As Christians, we find out very soon in a, in a fallen world that Christianity is not really acceptable. It's only tolerable. And what we find in the New Testament is that Jesus radically confronted man's opinions about God. One of the biggest questions that was always asked of Jesus was, who is God? And particularly, what does God have to do with my life? What we find very clearly in Jesus' ministry was that he was more detractive than he was attractive. In other words, people stopped following Jesus once they got to know what it really meant to follow Jesus. Thus, our world often is turned upside down when we recognize that those around us aren't really warned to the ideas that the Bible presents. Oftentimes in our society, and friends, this is only going to become obviously increasingly worse, we become marginalized and pushed aside as out of date, maybe even bigoted in our viewpoints about certain matters. 
And since our guiding principle in life has always been to be liked by everyone, we may be slowly tempted to follow the ways of the world to be acceptable rather than to follow Jesus. What, what I mean in this introduction to say is that I get it. I get it. When the world goes a certain way, sometimes it's easier to say, you know what? Why am I making a big deal about this? I know the Bible says we shouldn't do this. But, you know, let's just all get along. Look, wouldn't it be better just to love my neighbor where he's at? Ah, I know he's in sin, but, man, I just... See, we can be tempted to kind of follow the sort of spirit of relativism rather than following the biblical mandate to follow Jesus even if it's difficult. And what we find in the Sermon on the Mount today is that following Jesus is not and will never be the popular way. In other words, following Jesus will never, if done properly, be the majority road. This doesn't mean that in a culture there might be a majority of Christians. What it means is, is that following Jesus biblically and genuinely will be hard. It will be difficult. And we will find ourselves very lonely on this road. In other words, what we need to understand in Jesus' conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount is that it is normal for Christians to be in the minority. It is rather very abnormal in Christian history for genuine Christianity to be in the majority. Now, at a pop culture level, Jesus, friends, is tolerated in our culture. But when Jesus begins to talk in exclusive terms, when Jesus, even in the New Testament, it just read your New Testament, when Jesus begins to speak in inclusive terms, people begin to turn away. We know this in the rich young ruler. When Jesus says, hey, sell all your junk and come and follow me. He's, oh, that's too exclusive. I can't just have you. I can't, I can't do just you. I've got to have this and you. Exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ is seen by those in the world as bigotry, arrogant, and downright foolish. How can we claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to know God? In a pluralistic and materialistic and even relevant culture, Jesus is seen as outdated and it, you'll hear on the pop culture level on the wrong side of history. But he is exclusive, brothers and sisters. Jesus makes very clear he makes very clear, dogmatic, exclusive claims. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no, not no one, comes to the Father except through me. Friends, you can't get more exclusive than that statement right there. He says, I'm it. I am the door. I'm the doorkeeper. No one gets in except for through me. And so Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount is teaching his disciples how to follow him. And like any good Baptist preacher, he gives an invitation at the end. He says, will you follow me? 
He's laid out for them through the Beatitudes, through the exhortations to live righteously in an unrighteous world, to live as salt and light. He has taught them how to be a disciple, and now he gives the call to follow him. In these final verses of chapter 7, beginning in verse 12 through the end, Jesus gives an invitation through four warnings. He warns them in pairs. He says, listen, life is about two roads and two gates. You can either live and go that way, or you can go this way. He talks about two kinds of, of prophets or two kinds of teachers. There's, there's either false prophets or true prophets. He talks about two kinds of disciples. There's either true disciples or false disciples. There's, there's no middle disciple. And he concludes there's only two foundations. Either the foundation that's built on the rock of the confession of Jesus Christ or, or built the house that's built on sand. In other words, Jesus makes very exclusive claims. You're either for me or you are against me. You can't get more exclusive than that. And the question that should be in your mind this morning as you think about these final verses is, am I following Jesus? Am I following Jesus? You can reflect on that in the past tense. Have I been following Jesus? Am I presently following Jesus? And will I continue to follow Jesus? But this morning, Jesus confronts us with the question, are you going to follow me or are you not? Are you for me or are you against me? With that in mind, let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. This morning, we're just going to consider these uh, first two uh, first three, rather, verses here as he begins to summarize and call to action his disciples. Jesus says, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. What's Jesus' point? Genuine disciples are those who have chosen to follow Jesus. They've chosen the narrow and the difficult way. They've chosen the road less traveled. They've chosen to submit to him and follow him. And so this morning, I want us to consider this warning that Jesus has before us. Are we going down easy street, the popular street, the acceptable street, the one in which the world pats us on the back and says, you're living a good moral life? Or are you going down the hard street? Have you entered the narrow gate? Are you going down the road less traveled? When you look around you, do you see more people like the world in your life? Or do you see less and less people following Jesus? Will you follow him? And this morning we see two, two really main points. A summary statement that Jesus makes in, in verse 12. And then the first of these, two pair, of these four pairs that he has that we'll consider over the next couple of weeks. First, following Jesus includes loving others as yourself. I'm going to argue... And depending on how your Bible is laid out, it might appear 
that this isn't a summary statement. I'm going to argue here in just a moment. This is Jesus, verse 12, is a summary statement of all the Sermon on the Mount. In that one simple verse, he summarizes the whole sermon and he, he distills it down into one point. If you want to follow me, you're going to love others as you love yourself. In other words, the, that this ethic of love overarchingly summarizes what it means to be a disciple. Let me say it this way, John chapter 13. The world will know that you are my disciples, what? By your church membership, by your baptism, by your participation in the Lord's Supper, right? By your doctrinal depth, by your theological camp that you're a part, no, by your love for others. In, in other words, by the way you love those around you, by the way you treat those around you, the world will know that you're following Jesus. And then secondly, in verses 12, 13 and 14, following Jesus includes walking the road less taken. Jesus makes emphatically clear that following him is hard. So I hope to bust your bubble this morning that some evangelist convinced you of so many years ago that all you need to do is make a decision for Jesus. That's not at all what Jesus says here. You, you need to take up your cross and follow him. It, it's going to be hard. In fact, I want to convince you not to follow Jesus this morning because that's what he does. You see, he says, disciples, do you really want to follow me? Man, you can't hardly fit through the gate. Nobody's going to come. Nobody's going to follow you. It's going to be a hard and difficult road. You're going to fall in your face. You really want to follow me? That's what we want to think about these two points this morning. First, following Jesus includes loving others as yourself. Look here at verse 12 again. Now, depending on your translation, depending on how the translators thought, and, and there is debate here, and so I, I, I approach this with charity, but with common sense. In other words, does verse 12 seem to fit best with verse 11? Well, what does Jesus say in verse 11? Then if you who know, then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good things to those who ask? So Jesus has been just talking about prayer, right? Asking big things of a big God. We talked about that last week. And then he transitioned, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Well, a couple of things are problematic with you thinking that goes with verse 11. Is this. Number one, Jesus in verses uh, 7 through 11 makes no mention whatsoever of the law and the prophets. More than that, he's not even talking about those around you. He's more talking about your relationship with God and you going and asking God for things. So in my mind, if we understand the whole sermon and what Jesus has been doing, it makes better sense that what Jesus is doing here is allowing our minds to kind of remember what he said. Jesus uses a technique in a, in a tradition of oral communication, which is helpful. In other words, remember Jesus is communicating this in a sermon setting. All right? The disciples didn't have iPads sitting there taking notes. They didn't have a notepad. They're like, all right, I got to remember this. Uh, Jesus was teaching them in a way that would be memorable. And so he, he drops breadcrumbs along the way and then wraps it all back in and, and, and packages it together. And here's how he does that. He says, for this 
is the law and the prophets. Well, he began the sermon thinking about that very theme, didn't he? Look at, open your Bibles and, and, and stay with me here as I, I kind of go, go through this a bit. Um, you'll see here in verse 17 of chapter 5, Jesus makes this statement. And then he launches into the content of his sermon. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he begins to teach his disciples what it means to follow him. And so verse 12 serves as a summary of the whole sermon. And this is what I mean. Look at verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to count. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, I wonder, would verse the verses we're considered this morning, verse 12, make a good summary of that statement? Of course. Anger is contrary to how Jesus has, has exhorted us to care for one another. Would we want people to be angry with us all the time? Well, then we shouldn't be angry with them. Or consider verse 27, when Jesus says, you shall not commit adultery. It, it, would we want someone to commit adultery with our spouse? Well, then we wouldn't do that to someone else. Or consider verse 32. Would we want to just quickly divorce? How would we feel if our spouse just kind of had this laissez-faire, I don't care attitude to marriage? They're like, I'm just going to divorce them just because of some arbitrary reason. Well, we wouldn't want to be treated that way. Or verse 37, when Jesus says, uh, considering um, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Or rather, verse 30, I jumped ahead. Verse 37, uh, telling the truth, right? Let your yes be yes or no be yes. Would we want to be lied to? Then don't lie to others. Then going on to retaliation. Would we want people to constantly hold things over our heads? Then why are we holding it over others' heads? Or verse 42, when Jesus says, uh, verse 30, 43 rather, when Jesus says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Don't do that, he says. But rather, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wouldn't we want our enemies, quote unquote, enemies to, to give us the benefit of the doubt? Pray for us and pray for reconciliation. Or consider verse 3. Of chapter 6, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, generosity. Don't we want people to be generous with us? Then, then clearly we're going to be generous to those around us. We're in chapter 7, verse 1, when Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. Isn't Jesus a summary in chapter 7, verse 12, a, a helpful summary? If, if, if you don't want to be judged, then don't judge others. Don't go around treating others how you yourself don't want to be to be treated. And so I, I think it's helpful to understand what Jesus is doing here is, is sort of pivoting the sermon. He's transitioning the sermon to its natural conclusion by, by saying in verse 12, so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, what does Jesus mean? Well, Jesus in other settings, summarize the Old Testament ethical law in, in those, those terms. 
He doesn't mean that there aren't other commands. But if you were to distill the Old Testament ethical system, it could be distilled down to treat others how you want to be treated. In other words, Jesus here sets forth this reciprocal ethic of love. We ought, Jesus says, to care for others to the extent we care for ourselves. Of course, the Apostle Paul used this same logic when he was uh, helping husbands love their wives, right? He says, uh, Paul in Ephesians 5 says, well, I mean, nobody hates himself. I mean, no, he cares for himself. He bathes himself. He showers himself. He, he, he makes sure that he gets food. Well, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives. Well, the same ethical principle Jesus is using here. He says, we, we naturally love ourselves. Have you ever consider parents, grandparents, great-grandparents? Do you ever remember a time where you sat down and taught your toddler to love themselves? You remember having that conversation? Now, Johnny, you need to make sure you take care of yourself, that you always protect your toys and make sure nobody else gets... We never had it, right? We have instinctive... Uh, we care for ourselves. We make sure nobody touches our stuff, right? We're going to, I mean, whatever age, I've seen a kid, they were willing to throw down for themselves, right? There is a natural desire to care for ourselves. We ensure our own well-being. We always paint ourselves in the best light. Amen, right? You've had conversations with folks, right? They always tell the story like they're the hero of the story. They're not even a part of the story, and they're still the hero of the story. We always ensure that we get the best treatment. We turn this natural love for self, in a biblical sense, for a selfless love for others. We, we take this natural instinct in us. We're instinctive care for ourselves. And Jesus is saying, I want you to take that instinct that, that, it, that, that I created you with and use it to protect others, to love others, to care for others. To, that same benefit of the doubt that you give yourself, I want you to give to others. That same uh, grace that you always extend to yourself. You know, I, I make mistakes. I always, I mess up. I stumble. All, all that grace that you afford yourself. Jesus says, I want you to afford those same things to others. In this way, Jesus says, you fulfill all of the Old Testament. Jesus means that the Old Testament, again, can be distilled down to this summary. Not that there are other commands of, of love but, or another, other ethical demands, but rather love is pointing towards them all. Consider Leviticus 19.18. Moses Writing to the, to the nation of Israel, he says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I encourage you to read Leviticus. Um, not, not because it'll be your, you know, like Pastor Rod, your, your favorite verse, chapter of the book, but whatever, the Bible. But rather to see the correlation between the revelation of who God is and these ethical demands. In other words, God doesn't mince words. He says, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I mean, in other words, you better listen, 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 fool. 
um, because there is a correlation be between who I am and the way you care for others. We remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 was, was kind of trying to be tricked by the religious leaders, the, the experts on the Old Testament law. And they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, what's the, what's the most important command? What, what is it? If, we, if you could give us one command, what is it? What is the greatest command? Of course, they were doing that to trip Jesus up. Um, they were doing that in order to trap him. And Jesus, because he is, of course, the all-knowing and uh, all-wise God, he responds to them that you are to love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. And th- but he doesn't stop, does he? He says the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, friend, I know it's been a long time since you were in math, you know, first grade math. In first grade math, you, you, you learn about there's a first and a second and a third. There's an order to things, right? And you learn that if something is great or greatest, there's not something greater. And, and so listen to what Jesus says here. They say, what's the greatest? Jesus says, this is the greatest. Love the Lord your God and love others. No, no, Jesus, I said just one. I was asking for one, Jesus. I wasn't asking for two. Jesus says, no, you can't separate the two. They're inseparable. They're one and the same. You can't say you love God and at the same time say you hate people. Or you can't say, well, I just love man and, you know, I just love people where they're at. And, you know, if they're in sin, it is what it is. And say at the same time you love God. You can't have it both ways. And Jesus makes very clear that to follow me means that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, the rest of the New Testament authors build on this idea, and particularly the Apostle Paul. As I already alluded to, Ephesians chapter 5, elsewhere in Romans chapter 13, he says this, Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Of course, Paul was an expert on the law. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a teacher of teachers. He was the man. He was the expert on the law. And he himself also comes to the same conclusion that Jesus does. That the fulfillment of the law is this love ethic. Or perhaps when he was speaking to the church in Galatia, he says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. And so love for others and love for God is uh, the summary of the Bible's teaching of what we are to do. God created us to be people who love. And of course, we live in a culture that corrupts that teaching, that, that confuses that teaching, that turns it into an emotion Love is an emotion. It, it, part of love is. But, it, but it's not exclusively an emotion. It's not exclusively an affection. Love, we know, is sacrifice. Jesus himself displays what true love is. You see, God created us to live in community together. When we live in community, in harmony with one another, there is naturally going to be a love, an affinity for those around us. But through the fall, our community was severed. 
The word unity is in the word community, if you never paid attention to that. Um, it communicates that we are in unity through love and shared affection for one another. But through the fall, that was severed. If you look back at Genesis chapter 3, what, it, what happens there? Division, doesn't it? Disunity. Disunity between Adam and Eve and God. They were separated. And disunity between Adam and Eve. Eve's like throwing Adam under the bus and, and you know, Adam's throwing Eve under the bus. And, it, and it, this total division cre is created. D division between God and division between man. And this deadly seed of division runs through the whole of the Bible. Man is divided from God and from one another. And through this golden rule, as it's so called, we see a straightforward, Call to unity, not for unity's sake, but for the sake of the gospel. In other words, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ creates the unity that was broken in the fall. Thus, we are presented with our need for Jesus. You see that this world will give itself to certain means um, to generate unity. To, to try to foster and create community. And you say, what do you mean? All you have to do, just in a couple weeks, you'll see it. It's called football. All right? Um, there, there is this unity and community created around a shared affinity for a certain football team. And you just, I mean, you want to talk about worship, worship. It's, I mean, that's a definition of worship, right? And so the world strives for that. But that is all artificial. That is all man manufactured. No, the kind of unity that the gospel brings through the death and resurrection of Christ is that Jesus says, I'm come to call all men to myself. Wherever tribe, tongue, and nation, where, where there's not unanimity, where everybody thinks and does the same thing, but they're, you know, where we're all unanimous and we all look the same and smell the same and think the same, but rather genuine biblical unity is where we lay aside our personal preferences for the sake of those around us. Therefore, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners from the sin of division, division from God, the, our separation because of our sin. Jesus Christ satisfied God's wrath and called us now to this new family, which is represented here this morning in church gatherings and membership, that we ought to love ourselves, love others rather, more than ourselves. And Jesus demonstrates what it means to follow him. And I think R.C. Sproul captures this so helpfully for us. He says this. We cannot control what others say about us or do to us, but we can control what we say about them and do to them. We, as Christians, he says, should be thinking about doing for them rather than doing to them. As only R.C. could capture this text. And this is what Jesus says. Hey, if you want to do something to others, let it be something you would do for yourself. 
if you want to genuinely love others, that's the standard, right? That's the basis. And, and there is so many applications and implications of this. I, I mean, just this week, I mean, my mind was just flooded with so many ways that we can apply this to our life. Friend, how would you describe your love for others? Is your love for others an indiscriminate love? Or, or do you only love those who you know will love you back? In other words, do you love only the lovable? That's, that's kind of easy, isn't it? Or do you, do you love others by showing them the benefit of the doubt? I, I think this right here, this idea of showing others the benefit of the doubt is a lot of what you see breaking down in public conversation today. In other words, we always assume the worst, never the best. We always assume that those are around. And you want to see a lot of the conflicts among Christians today. Uh, I'm not going to go into like specific things because I really think it's broad. It's because we assume the worst rather than think the best. You see Christians on social media fighting with one another. And a lot of it's just based on these assumptions uh, rather than a genuine benefit of the doubt. We, I, I'll give you an example, a specific example. There are some folks in our denomination that think that certain organizations within our denomination are corrupt. And, and I want to kind of come alongside them and ask them, do you really think that? You really think that, that all those trustees that, that are responsible for that entity are, are really got their head in the sand on this matter? Do you really think that? You know, so often in our lives, we do not give the benefit of the doubt. Do you, do you, do you allow others to make mistakes? Do you allow others to, to, to fall? You know, the way that you make mistakes? The way you fall? The way that maybe historically in your past, when you were in your 20s, you fell? Or in your 30s or 40s or wherever it was. And perhaps you're the only perfect one among us this morning. Brothers and sisters, we must remember that in our brokenness, Jesus still loves us. Which means that as his disciple, we ought to love others in their brokenness. This does, do not misunderstand me. I do not mean that you, you, you're ch twisting the Bible to say something that's not saying. But people that are in sin are in brokenness, okay? And we got to meet them there with love, compassion, and care. Not by railroading them. That's what we've got to do. This is what Jesus is calling us to do. Thus, in our congregation, our marriages, with our children, among our neighbors... We must have this abiding principle. Love others the way you yourself love yourself. Well, secondly, here in verses 13 through 14, as Jesus, again, is pivoting towards a conclusion. He's, he's driving for a decision, but, but not just merely a, a hand raised and a prayer prayed, but rather a, a life lived in sacrifice. He makes emphatically clear that following him includes walking the road less taken. It includes the hard road, the difficult road. 
Look here in verses 13 and 14. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Notice here in verse 13 the way Jesus describes these two roads. He describes one road as narrow, or rather the gate, the entry point to that road is is narrow, and that the, the actual road itself, is why uh, is narrow he, he describes two types of roads a, a narrow road and a broad road and he says that the wide gate is the easy leads to the easy road it's the one that he says leads to destruction again jesus here does not mean destruction of life a, a bad life a terrible existence here on earth he doesn't mean that your life will even look wrecked You know, so often uh, we think that, and it is true that those who live contrary to God live a wrecked life. But sometimes, on appearance sake, they look pretty good. In fact, that's what lures so many Christians to follow into fall into sin is because they, they want an easy life. They want the wide road. Rather, Jesus here, notice what he says, leads to destruction. What what is he referring to? He's he's referring here to eternal destruction. He's referring to judgment. He says there are many on the the wide road that appear to be on easy street. There is little attention needed when you are on a wide road. We know that if you're driving a car, you go down an alleyway, or perhaps you're driving around some of the you know, in the city or, 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 or where there's a narrow street and there's cars on both sides. I always like when I'm down in D.C. watching the dump trucks go down those little narrow roads. I'm like, oh, are they going to hit a car? That'd be kind of cool to watch. Um, but uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. But, but no, right? We, there's, a, there's a tension needed when, when there's obstacles on both sides. But if the, if the road is clear and wide... It's got a good curb on the side, you know, good shoulder. If I, I kind of veer over, I don't have to pay attention as much. And Jesus here describes a road with less obstacles to hit. But if you get on a narrow road, on an alleyway, on cars on both sides, there is attention needed. There's care. Notice also he says that many are on this wide road, but that few find the narrow way. He, he, he sets them up in a parallel well. He says the one that leads to destruction, there's a lot of people on it. And the one that leads to, to life, there are few on it. Of course, here he's re, referring to eternal life. The road that leads to eternal life is a hard and few travel upon it. There are many ways, or there are only two ways, rather, Jesus says, to follow. You either follow on the easy, but you're not following him, or you follow on the hard, and you are. He describes this other way, the way uh, to life as a difficult road. And he commands in verse 13, look at how he begins. He says, enter by the narrow gate. He, he does, he, he's calling for a response. He's calling them to action. He's commanding his disciples to enter by the narrow gate. And he gives them the reasons why they don't want to go the other way and why they want to come his way. 
It is an imperative, he says, that they follow him along this more difficult path. The path he describes here, or elsewhere rather, is a cross. Jesus exhorts his disciples before the passion narrative in John's gospel to take up your cross and to follow me. Jesus didn't mean to put a cross around your neck and feel good about yourself, but rather to to die to yourself that you might live in Christ. Again, Jesus here does not refer merely to our present life. When he says that it leads to life, Jesus does not mean that it leads to a good life now. But rather, as he began the sermon, it begins with a happy life. See, we want to understand the difference between a good life and a happy life. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. I don't seem very happy. But that's what Jesus says. Again, it does not mean that life will be easy. It, if you would just talk to other Christians around you, you would understand that following Jesus is hard. It is difficult. It is narrow. It requires a constant attention and often leads to pain and suffering. But in the end, Jesus says it will lead to life. Now, friend, you might be confused because you, you might think, well, this is a weird perspective. And, and Jesus, again, is giving you a different perspective. Often we talk about, and you've heard today, that, that we have an eternal hope. That we are in heaven now, if you will. All right? there, that, that's a different perspective. And Jesus here is giving us a more on-the-road perspective. A, a dashboard, dashboard view of our lives. Rather than that sort of big picture perspective, the 30,000 foot view, he's given us the the right here and now view. Are you following me or are you following those in the world? What Jesus means is that there are not multiple ways to get to eternal life, but there is one and only one way. And it's through him. Through his death. In his resurrection, through the, his atoning work, through his blood, only him can we know the one true and living God. Peter says similarly in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, And there is, no, there is salvation rather in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. No other name but the name of Jesus. You see, Christians and Christianity will always, if properly followed, be in the minority and not the majority. This isn't what Jesus says. Few will find it. Few are on the road. It is the road less taken. Unfortunately, many in the wider culture have at times pressured Christians To come into the light, if you will, and be a moral majority. They've done this for their own political purposes. To serve the wider culture rather than the kingdom of God. And friends, there never should be a time when we are surprised that Christians are marginalized and underrepresented and misrepresented in the wider American context that we find ourselves today. Friend, Jesus says few will find it. And and frankly, 
This runs quite contrary to much of the revivalism of the 20th century. That sought to make decisions for Jesus rather than disciples for Jesus. And I'm not throwing bombs at any one particular person. But I will say this. That for y'all in the 20th century church. And I was a part of that as well. What we sought to do is have bended knees and raised hands and prayers prayed rather than making genuine disciples for Jesus Christ. And you wonder why none of those people who made a decision for Jesus when they were kids are following Jesus today. Because they took the road that was easy. They did what you wanted them to do. And that was it. They never made a decision to follow Jesus. They, they never decided. Je- John says this. They went out from us because they weren't of us. If they were of us, they would have stayed. Let me help you. Stop enabling decisions for Jesus and enabling your lost friends and family to think they're going to heaven. You're not helping them get to heaven. In fact, you're helping them. You're packing their bags for hell by by making them think that because they did something in VBS 30 years ago, they're going to turn up in heaven. Friend, they're not. All right. Let me just bring you a reality check here. If you today are depending on that, if you're turning up into heaven, you're saying, well, one time in VBS, I walked an aisle. Jesus is going to say, I told you to follow me down a hard and difficult, and you haven't done one bit of that. You've not followed me at all. You followed yourself. And you've assured yourself, you've satisfied your conscience with a decision rather than being a disciple. Disciples follow. In the book of Acts, we learn that before Christians were called Christians, what were they called? They were called the followers of the way. What do you mean? This way. The hard road. The narrow gate. They were followers of the way. And that's what we are today. We are merely followers of Jesus. Not the Jesus of American ingenuity. Not the the Jesus of our own personal imagination. No, no, I mean the Jesus of the Bible that's revealed. The, The Jesus that says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's the Jesus. The Jesus who died that you might live. The Jesus who who doesn't come alongside and put his arm around you and say, your sin will be okay. But rather to say, you must get rid of your sin, repent of your sin, and trust in me, and go God's new way. R.C. Sproul says it best. Or rather, J.C. Ryle, not our other other acronym. J.C. Ryle says it best. We may well tremble and be afraid if our religion is that of the multitude. If we can say no more than that we go that where we go, others go, and where we worship, others worship, and hope that we shall do well as others at last. We are literally pronouncing our own condemnation. What is this but being in the broad way? In other words, he's saying, just because everybody else is doing, 
You know what road you're on if everybody else is doing it? You're on the broad way, he says. What is this but being in the road that ends in destruction? Our religion at present, he says, is not saving religion. Surely it is better to enter eternal life with a few than to go to destruction with a great company. Friend, what road are you on this morning? Who are you following? Are you following Jesus? I mean the real Jesus. The Jesus here revealed to us. Has it been easy to follow Jesus? Do you find your thinking and your moral choices more like those you watch on your evening TV shows or the life of those around you here this morning? A life of continual sacrifice, of continual submission, of continual sacrificial love. Friend, I leave you with this question. Do you find yourself growing more and more comfortable in this world or less and less? Do you find yourself more at home here or do you find yourself more and more like a stranger, like an alien, like this isn't my home and I long to see my new home? Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning desperately for our need for Jesus. These are hard words, and no doubt I've said some hard things, and I do it graciously. I do it in love. Father, help, help, help your people to know that. Help us to know that, that we really, truly need to think hard in my following Jesus. Help everyone in here this morning be convicted but it be empowered by your spirit. Like the Apostle Paul says, it's not me, but it's him. That He's working in me. He's conforming me. That he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion. That's our hope, Father. That your spirit will not leave us nor forsake us, but that he will continue to transform us into the glorious image of his Son. Transform us, we pray, for your glory and our eternal good in Christ, we pray. Amen.